king. Is that how you would do it? Or would you instead break out, you know, the, the rock band and the light show and all of those things and say, we're going to wow this audience. We're going to burst into Jerusalem. We're going to impress them with who we are. We're going to bring in all the camels and all the chariots and all the, you know, whatever it might be, the, the, the show that we can bring. We're going to bring it because the king is coming. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3, and if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove the sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. Now, it seems that in our world, everyone has a message, and all those messages are carefully designed to appeal to whatever audience that message goes out to. And so there are political messages, there are social messages, there are messages for every kind of special interest group, there are sports messages, you name it. But really universally common to all of those messages is that they are carefully designed again so that whoever is listening to them, the, the ones for whom they were designed, that they will be drawn towards wanting to respond to that message that it will be there, it, it will appeal to whatever part of that interest group the message is desiring to reach. Well, the problem with that is that oftentimes the things that whatever that interest group is, what they really need, those things are overlooked because that's not what they really want. Consider our political messages. Every time you have a new administration, every time so you have, you're electing someone new, they're trying to come up with a message that will enable them to get where they want to go and not necessarily do what is really necessary for those that they are supposed to be benefiting. And in fact, what they understand very often in these messages is if they were to actually present what was really needed, if they gave the real message, then they would never get 
anywhere close to office or anywhere close to the point of influence that they think that they would need to accomplish anything. Well, the beauty of Scripture, the beauty of what God brings to us is that He knows our true needs. And the message that He brings is always the right message, but it is rarely the message that we initially want to hear. And what we're going to see this morning with the herald of the king, that is that John the Baptist comes to proclaim the coming of the king and the message that is necessary to receive that king is that the message that he proclaims is, what is definitely what the world needs to hear. It is what his audience needs to hear, but we will see that it is not what they want to hear. And you will run into the same problem as you are a herald of the king yourself. The message that the world needs is the message that it does not want to hear, and the messengers and the messengers that take this message must be willing to bear the world's scorn. As we will see, the progression from the proclamation or the herald of the king will ultimately be to the death of the king on the basis of the message that this king brings. The world doesn't like to hear its true need. The world does not like to hear the, the reality of their own sin, and yet that is exactly the place where the herald to the king begins. And so we're going to take a little time this morning to explore the, that message that the herald brings. We won't get very far in this passage. There's a lot to it. So verses 1 through 12, we'll be covering those over the next several weeks. But what we'll see this morning as we just begin to explore what the herald has to say about what the king will do and who the king will be is that the kingdom of heaven is offered to all. But it may only be entered by those who recognize their sin, are broken over their sin, and desire to turn from their sin. Again, the kingdom of heaven is offered to all, but may only be entered by those who recognize their sin, are broken over it, and desire to turn from the sin that characterizes, that, that really infuses every part of their lives. Now, as we come to chapter 3, let's remember where we are. In chapter 1, we began with the lineage of the king. And so we open up with Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all the necessary lineage for him to be the true king. And remember, that's the theme of Matthew. He is the savior king. So Matthew is demonstrating to us Christ's credentials to be the king of the universe, to be the one who can save us, and the one who, who comes as a result of the Old Testament predictions and the Old Testament pedigree. Everything necessary, all the right ancestors, all of the right characteristics are found in Christ, and all of that predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. He is the right Messiah. He has the right lineage. And then we saw the birth of the king. And here Matthew continues to bring the Old Testament to bear. And really, he brought five Old Testament quotations that relate to both the birth of the king and then the ultimate worship of the king and, and really even the travel of the king, where that king goes. The Old Testament predicted all of those things. And remember that, that he says these things happen so that all of, this, all of these things would be fulfilled. Everything that is happening is a demonstration of the fact that God has sovereignly planned all of this from before the beginning of time, that he makes no mistakes, and that the one that he sent, the Messiah that he sent, is again, is the true Messiah. So the lineage of the king, the birth of the king. He was virgin-born. He was the God-man. He is God with us. And then we saw the worship of the king. And fascinatingly enough, all those who should have worshipped him reject him. And we will see that as a continual pattern throughout the book of Matthew. The ones to whom he came, initially Israel, his people, his ethnic people, they reject him. And the first worship of the king does not come truly from his own people. The shepherds come, right, and they come, but it does not say that they bow down and worship him. They come and they, they observe, they are observers to his birth. The first worshippers that we see, those who fall down before him and worship him as the king, are pagan mystics, or formerly pagan mystics. It seems to us that they have believed, that they have understood that this king will be born, that he's truly the king of the Jews, and they come from the east, 
most likely as a result of the word of God that they have read and then also proclaimed to them. And they come and they fall on their knees and they worship the king while the elected or the, or the uh, instituted king of the Jews, Herod, sits in his palace plotting the demise of the true king. And while the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, even though they're able to point to exactly where the king will be born, sit with indifference or possibly with great fear and trepidation to cross Herod, the one who claims to be king. And so they sit in Jerusalem while the king is born and while the king is worshipped. And then last week we looked at the threat to the king. That from the very moment, really, that Jesus is born, there is a, there is a conspiracy to put him to death. But that's not a human conspiracy, right? That's a demonic one. And so Satan sets about to do anything possible to keep Jesus from dying at the right time. So if he can circumvent that by killing him early, he will seek to do that. And he did, as Herod then sends the soldiers to kill the babies after the Magi go back a different way and don't tell him exactly where the child is. So the threat to the king is thwarted by God's action, but ultimately even that is predicted, that there would be a threat to him and that he would then be called to first to Egypt, to go into Egypt, and then be called out of Egypt really as a, a picture of what Israel did, as Jesus is the greater Israel, he is the one who fulfills those things that Israel could not do. So he goes into Egypt and out of Egypt, the threat is thwarted according to the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and the prophecy that God had brought. And so we, come, we came around full circle in chapter 2, verse 23, and they came and lived in the city called Nazareth, and this was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Essentially, he will constantly be one who is considered to be a nobody from nowhere. He comes from Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks, and that's where he begins his ministry. It's been fascinating as I've been reading through the Bible this, this year. I'm doing a plan that I, there's, there's 10 different chapters I read, some from the old and some from the new. And I was just marking down the references to Jesus, the Nazarene, over this past week, and there were four or five of them. As we move into the book of Acts, this seems to be constantly a reference that Jesus came from this nowhere place, and it's most often used, it seems to me, as a derogatory statement. Look, these are Nazarenes. Why would you be part of that? Why would you become a Nazarene? Well, as we will see, the world not only doesn't like where Jesus came from or seemed to have come from, it doesn't like what he has to say. And so now let's talk about the herald to the king. And first we have the coming of John the Baptist. Now, between verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 1, it appears that we have nearly 30 years, 27, 28 years. Because it says, now in those days, John the Baptist. Now, it's not speaking of those days, that is, the days that Jesus moved to Nazareth. Remember, he was a boy then, two to three years old, possibly. No, he's speaking when it says, now in those days, John the Baptist came. It's in the days of John the Baptist, the days of the beginning of the ministry of Christ, as we will see. And the opening salvo in that ministry, the beginning portion of it, is that there must be a herald to proclaim his coming. So in those days, the time of John the Baptist's ministry and the time when he is heralding the coming of the king. Again, this most likely is about A.D. 27. We know that Jesus starts his ministry, it says, when he was about 30 years of age. And remember that he was not born on zero uh, zero wouldn't be BC or AD. Just he wasn't born zero. He was probably born to between two and four BC because people misunderstood when Herod actually died and some other calendar issues. Right. So by the time we get to Jesus being about thirty years old, this would be about AD twenty-seven. And so uh, we this this time when John the Baptist comes is just before, as we will see, the beginning of the ministry of Christ when he is nearly thirty years old. And what is often fascinating to me 
is that there's really only, and it's not recorded in the book of Matthew, we go from Jesus being a baby, Jesus being a young boy into Egypt and out, beginning his, his life in Nazareth, all the way to where he starts his ministry. And we have nothing in between. Nothing about Jesus being a teenager. How disappointing. Right? Nothing about his childhood and all the things he might have done and might have said and how did he respond in the home. Wouldn't you want to know those things? I'd love to know that. But the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. Right? Certainly not in Matthew. Now in the book of Luke we have one recorded incident as Jesus really begins to, he kind of sets forth his mission when he was essentially a teen, when he's 12 years old, when he's making the transition from childhood to adulthood, we see one little snapshot where he's in the temple, remember, and he his parents leave and they leave him, kind of like you've done, he must be with his friends. Maybe he's at church and you drive away. I don't know if any of you have ever done that. I've come pretty close, right? And I have been left at church myself. I come from a family of five and so I've been there. We thought you were with your friends. We thought you were, no, I was waiting for you. But Jesus actually, he goes to the temple and he is, he is truly, he is listening and proclaiming there. You remember what he says when his parents come, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? He's announcing to them and really to us, my, my life is not bound up in being your child ultimately. It is bound up in being the son of God and accomplishing that purpose. But that's all we see. And then the last, really the last picture of Christ in Luke is in, during this, this time between his, his ministry and his birth is that he continues in subjection to his parents. And I've been certain that's, that's purposely there for all of you teens out there who think that somehow, well, I've, I've gone beyond my parents. That's what happens when you reach 16, right? I, I'm past them. Well, Christ was past them pretty early and earlier than you. And yet he continued in subjection. And it also says he grew in favor with God and men. Those are really, that's the, that's, all the, that's the only snapshot we see. As a teen, he's about his father's business. He is increasing with, in favor with God and with man, and he's obeying his parents. And that's all you need to know. We're not, again, even, Matthew doesn't even reveal that to us, so we're not going to study it in depth this morning because he doesn't even take us there. But I just want to remind you that that is the only snapshot. Wouldn't that be the neatest thing? You know, young people, you're born, you launch your ministry or marriage or career or whatever, and the only thing we really knew about you was that you were about your father's business, you were in submission to your parents, and you continued in favor with God and men. Oh, so many other things, young people, that you want. But Jesus, those are the things that he did, and nothing else really recorded about his growing up. It doesn't mean those things weren't important. It simply means that they're not important to what we need to know about him as our Savior and Lord. Only the one thing that we see there. And it is, again, somewhat unusual to us as we consider the nature of biographies. Very often when you have a biography, what do you want to know? You want to know all those details. It's fascinating to me that most of the spurious writings about Christ, I just had a discussion with that, we went, or Greg and I were on the radio, and there was a radio host there, and she was asking me about the canon, how, how do we get the canon, and, and so I'm trying to explain a little bit, and I said, what about the book of Enoch, and all these other things, most of the spurious books written about Christ during, during the time, right, right after, uh, you know, an early church fathers, you know, 100 to 300 AD, they were about his childhood. And they're about things that he did, magical things that he accomplished, and ways that, you know, ways that he helped people, and yet none of that is recorded for us in Scripture. Nothing that even closely resembles that. It's almost like people wanted to come along and say, we really want to know about that. We're not so much interested in truly what the Bible has to tell us about who Jesus is. So we jump all the way from Jesus being maybe two or three, maybe less than that, maybe a year or two old, to when he is about 30 as John the Baptist comes on the scene. John the Baptist says, now in those days, John the Baptist came 
preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the path or the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now we're not going to really get much into that this morning, but just so you know, the whole purpose here is that John is, is a herald. He's the forerunner. He's the one who goes before the king to prepare the people for the king. And he does this, the way this was done in Old, Old Testament times or with, with kings is that they would send physically, they would send their kind of their, their first, uh, the first, uh, first party out with a herald there and he would proclaim that the king was coming and he would prepare the way even physically by making sure that the king could travel the road, that there were no dangers there, that, that if there were bridges that were out, he would take care of those. If something needed to be built, he would deal with that. Well, John is coming in much the same way. As a herald, he really only has two jobs. He is to announce the coming of the king, and he is to prepare for the safe and proper travel of the king. And I would put it this way, he announces the coming of his Lord, and he prepares, and in this case, not so much the physical landscape, he prepares the spiritual landscape. That's what John is doing. He is getting people ready to accept the message of the king, and you have to keep that in your mind. The king has a message. He has something that he wants to proclaim. And John is to come and, and clear the way so that that message can be heard. And we're going to see that over and over in the book of Matthew. And you read it in the Gospels. And it's something that is much misunderstood. John the Baptist and his whole ministry, there's, there's much that is said about it. But the whole idea of his message being that which, which, which paved the way for others to hear the message of Christ and really to receive the person of Christ is much misunderstood. And we'll see that it factors into who Jesus hung around with when he was on earth, the nature of the, of the tax gatherers and, and those who, who surrounded Jesus, all of those having responded to the ministry of John. It's a tremendously important ministry. In fact, we'll, we'll find out later that Jesus called John the greatest man who has ever been born. It was not the God-man, the greatest man ever. And so we certainly should pay attention to the ministry that this man had. Craig Bumberg says that Matthew abruptly jumps from the events surrounding Jesus' birth to the time of his adult life. Apart from the one episode of Jesus' teaching at the temple at age 12, none of the canonical Gospels describes anything about the intervening years. Apparently they provide few clues to his true identity or the necessity of his coming mission. And so now we have simply the herald on the scene to give us the message. And again, I would say, obviously, the Spirit of God knows what he's doing. And that we didn't need to know any of those other details. Here's the one detail we need to know. The king is coming, and we are to respond to his message. John 1, 6 through 8, as, as, as the Gospel of John reveals to us the ministry of John the Baptist. It says, I came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Remember, the herald is not the one who receives the glory. The messenger is not supposed to be lifted up as the one who is important. It is always the one that the message is speaking of. The herald proclaims the king. And so now let's talk about the message of John the Baptist. So as this herald has come, as John is, he really, he's preceding the arrival of the king. He's announcing the coming of the king and he's preparing a way for the king and, and essentially for the, the acceptance or reception of the king's message. And really, that is, in our case, in the case of Christ, the king's person. Right? The acceptance of the king's person. How does he go about this? Right? If you were going to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, what would you do? Well, this is what God did. And he comes 
it says he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent. So first we have the method. First we have the method. How does this message come? And this should not surprise us because this is how the message comes everywhere in the Bible. This is the way that the message is to go forth. It is through preaching. He came proclaiming. He came heralding. He is the herald, so he came proclaiming that message. And everywhere in Scripture, this is what we see. The message is to be proclaimed. Yes, it is to be lived. Yes, it is to take root in our lives so that it is demonstrated through what we do. But the message must always be proclaimed. It must be explained. The truth must be laid out. The reality of what is happening must be clearly spoken. The, the, the propositional truth of what is happening, must the world must know what that is. Right? So he comes preaching. And the word there simply is just to announce and to make known. Right? But the word is most often, it kind of has been adopted in the New Testament, it's just a general Greek word, but it's really adopted to, for the preaching of the good news. Most nearly everywhere else we see it in the New Testament, it has to do with preaching the gospel, not just announcing any message. Right? So this word is used to, for the proclamation of the gospel. Now, notice also, it says in, in, in those days, John the Baptist, we'll talk about him a little more in just a bit, but John the Baptist came preaching. So his title is Baptist. That is, he is the one who baptizes, but his, what he comes to do as a herald is what? First, preach. So he's the baptizer who preaches. He's kind of characterized in his ministry, again, through his baptism, but he is one who proclaims the message. Now, again, just, just for a moment before we move on, as far as what, what, so how can John be preaching this message? What credentials does he have to actually be preaching? Who said that he should be the herald? Well, we find all of that information in Luke chapter 1. Again, remember, Matthew doesn't provide any of that. And so if you only had the Gospel of Matthew, which some would only have had in the early church, it would have been difficult to ascertain, well, why is, why is John even doing these things? Well, in Luke, we learn what? That he is the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was promised or announced by the angel Gabriel that he was set apart from birth to accomplish this. And really, it was predicted that he would go into the wilderness and that he would be the one proclaiming. So he's been given this task in a God-given manner. But it is fascinating that in Matthew, we don't have any of those details. Because it is not John the Baptist, the person, and even so much his credentials for why he is allowed to be this herald, it is his message. What he is proclaiming is what is focused on by Matthew so that we remember again what is important. We hear who he is. He's called John the Baptist, and we're going to have to figure out why that is because we don't even know. And we'll see in this passage and in others because he baptizes. But he comes preaching, he comes proclaiming, and that is the focus that Matthew places on us. And I would remind you of that as well. People have to hear the message, the person who brings it, although there are biblical qualifications, that is for believers, that we are, again, to live out the truth and be an example of it. The bottom line is it's our message that is vital, and we must proclaim it. And who we are individually, where we come from, what we've accomplished, those things really mean nothing. And that's exactly opposite from what the world would want from any kind of herald. How impressive is this guy? What, what credentials does he have to be this herald? What, what talents? What gifts? How did he earn the right to do this? What can he proclaim to us as, well, we want to, we want to know why this herald has the right to give us this message? Well, we're told very little of those things. And instead, we're told, or we're really, it's demonstrated that we're to focus on the message. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? That's the word we're using here. Without a preacher, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. What makes their feet, as it were, beautiful? It is their message, not their feet. It's not who they are. It's not what they've accomplished. And I hope that encourages you. John the Baptist was a great man, as we will see. And yet his greatness came as a result of his submission to the Lord in his accomplishing the work God had given in his proclaiming the proper message. And that's the same for us. Our greatness does not come from where we were born. It does not come from who we are intrinsically. But so often those are the things for which we strive. And that's what the world wants to know. And over and over as we get exposed to the person of John, we see that he rejects that. He is a true herald, and he understands that it's not about him and what he's done. And, of course, you probably all know of his famous statement when they say, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. And, and he's a, everyone's going to him. What do you have to say about that, John? What does he say? He must increase. I must decrease. Who I am ultimately means nothing. Who he is means everything. And that's why we focus on the message and, and even on the method. Of preaching, he is he. This this message must be proclaimed. Now, so would would that be the the means that you would that you would use? Would you send a lone solitary man to go and and simply just preach and tell everyone about this message? If you were the one who was in charge of planning the campaign for the introduction of the king, is that how you would do it? Or would you instead break out, you know, the the rock band and the light show and all of those things and say we're going to wow this audience? We're going to burst into Jerusalem. We're going to impress them with who we are. We're going to bring in all the camels and all the chariots and all the, you know, whatever it might be, the, the, the show that we can bring. We're going to bring it because the king is coming. That's how most kings were introduced. So what I'm saying to you isn't some strange thing. If a king were going to come, his herald would come, usually not by himself and not simply proclaiming a message, but with everything that would prove that the king coming, that they should listen to him with the external things, with his power usually. Usually they would come with a piece of the army so that they could say, look, the king is coming and you better pay attention. The one who is in charge of you is coming. But that's not how God did, God did it. First, a simple message. One man preaching. And this is for the king of the universe. The king who has been promised for thousands of years. His herald comes preaching. I think that will give us, and the Bible gives us, other reasons to know and understand that that's the same kind of, of way that we make the proclamation as well. But again, where would you pick that? So if you, if you were, let's say you did come up with, all right, we're just going to have somebody go and speak. He's going to go and preach. Well, then where would he go? Well, of course, if you're planning this in your mind, he would go to the most populous spot. He would go to where everybody is, Jerusalem or yeah, the capital city. And so he would go and he would, he would walk through maybe kind of like Jonah did with Nineveh. And he would go and proclaim the message, repent, so that the most people could hear it. Isn't that the way we think? We've got to get the most people to this message because we have to make sure that we manufacture what is necessary so the message will be heard. Always that's our tendency. Always that's our desire. What can we do to make sure that we are successful? Isn't, isn't that what that's really all about? We've been reading in the, in the theology news recently. We've been reading about a, a, a church, uh, Elevation Church, and all the craziness that's been going on and all the things that are coming out. Just, I mean, that's a dime a dozen. 
Those things are everywhere. Those kinds of churches, those kinds of ministries, they're everywhere. In fact, they're the common kind of ministry that exists in our society, ever increasingly in evangelical circles. You have to make sure that the message is going to work, because if you don't, you feel really bad. And what are you actually accomplishing if you don't set people in the congregation when you preach and give a message that 15 of them come forward walking past everyone else to make sure that they see it, even though they have nothing to do with conversion, they come to the front so that everyone will be drawn down as the music and the lights go. How we think of it. So you probably wouldn't pick the location that God picked because John comes preaching where? In the wilderness. So yeah, now this is prophetic. I understand that. He seems a lot like Elijah, and we'll talk more about that. Interestingly enough, he seems to correspond a lot to that ministry. But he could have shown up anywhere. He could have made this proclamation anywhere. He could have been sent into the cities, into a place where there would be more people. But instead, he goes out in the wilderness of Judea. John MacArthur says this, By the world's standards and procedures, the coming of a king or of a great person of any sort is proclaimed and prepared for with great expense, pomp, and fanfare. Even the announcer dresses in the best suits, stays in the best hotels, contacts only the best people, and makes preparations for the monarch to visit only the best places. But this was not God's plan for the heralding of his son. John the Baptist was born of obscure parents, dressed strangely even for his day, as we will see, not this morning, but next week, Lord willing. And he carried on his ministry mostly in out-of-the-way and unattractive places. He goes to the wilderness, and he begins to make his proclamation. He proclaims there. Exactly why? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why. But again, it seems to be the, 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 the important issue here is as the message is proclaimed, we will see the power of God to bring those to respond to the message, that he is the one who makes the message powerful, that he is the one who draws the people, that he is the one who works in their hearts. And we see that from the very beginning. And so there's no mistake about it. John goes out, and as we will see, people do come. In fact, a lot of people at first. And they come to hear that message. Why? Because God is bringing them. And now we come to the content. right? So the method, preaching, is not so impressive. The world doesn't think much of preaching today, and it certainly didn't think all that much more of it back then. The location in the wilderness is certainly not impressive. A lot of other places that you could have chosen, out in the barren places. I have not been to Israel myself, but you get all those pictures and you see, you know, as, as you're out in, in the wilderness, there's not much there. The rocks, not, not trees, just a you know, hot desert, whatever it might be. In the wilderness, that's where he comes. And then the content of the message. Well, if all of the other things were offensive and difficult, well, the message, as we will see, is much more so. If the place was not seemingly the best place that you would pick, if the, the, the way that the message is presented in preaching is not what you would pick, I guarantee you that if you were looking for people to respond, that if you wanted them to flock around you and to, and to get ready and get excited about the king, particularly the people, the Israelites, to whom the king was supposed to be coming, you would not preach this message. You would preach a lot of other ones. The king is coming. Maybe you would come and say, well, the king is coming and he will give you many gifts. The king is coming and he will radically change your life. He will free you from bondage and slavery. The king is coming and he will fix your families which are broken. The king is coming and he will help you in your jobs to be successful. The king is coming and he will give you the purpose that you need in life. He will make sure that this life just isn't some miserable existence that you have. He will give you meaning. Have you heard those messages proclaimed before? I think you have. And very often, that's how the king is proclaimed. 
people come proclaiming the king will give you this and the king will provide you this. And it makes sense to those proclaiming it, it seems, because why wouldn't we tell everyone about what the king has to give them? But there's a problem with that. Because you cannot receive what the king has to give unless first you give to the king what he desires. See, the king will not come and you will not say to the king, well, king, bring it on. Give me the stuff. Unless you first present to the king what he asks of you. It is always that way. Always. How have we gotten this totally reversed view of what it means to be a believer? That God is always to respond to us. We even look at our circumstances that way. God, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing these things to me? You need to respond to me. We even see our prayers that way so often. Nothing wrong with God wanting God to respond, as we will see. That's not the issue. But he is the one that should respond to us. Always do what we want, and we'll serve you. But when the king comes, that is not the message, and that's not what the herald talks about when he presents or when he paves the way for the reception of the king. He does not speak of the king's gifts. He speaks of the subject's sin. Not the king's gifts, and the king has many gifts. Let's not, let's not forget that. I'm not, I'm not in any way laying that aside. The king is rich beyond imagining. The king is the king of the universe, the king of the world, who has all things at his fingertips, who, who created the world with simply a word. He has everything, and he bestows his blessings and his benefits upon his people. But first, their sin must be exposed. First, the problem, their inability to receive what he would give to them because they do not meet his standards. And that's another thing about the king. The king does not come and say, well, the people haven't quite lived up to what I want. So therefore, I will change the rules. I no longer have those laws. Kings don't do that. Not even human kings do that. Why? Because they're the king and they're in charge. And when they say this is how it's supposed to be, the people do not come and say, well, we think it's supposed to be this way. Now, we try to do that in our country, and thankfully we can do some of that. But that isn't the way that it works when you're speaking to the king. You don't say, I don't like the rules. I don't like the standard. The standard is too high. Change the standard so I can come. The king comes presenting his standard, and he never changes it. As we will see, our king is a special king. Because what he does is enable us to reach the standard. But that's the beginning of this message. That's the beginning of what the herald presents, is that the standard of God is fully and is full and complete holiness, absolute perfection, and you may not receive the king until you have reached that status. You may not have what the king has to give you unless you are acceptable in the eyes of the king. That's your first job, as it were. That's your first thing. So what's the message that is presented? Here's the content first, the necessity of repentance. Is this not stark? Now, in those days, John the Baptist came. And again, we're going to talk more about the man next week. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent. The first words out of the mouth of the herald have to do with what? our sin. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages 
presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.